so we are going to just jump right in. We've been in the, the book of John for, for a number of weeks, um, a series called Jesus According to John, because the, the Gospels are, are basically um, are, are biographies of, of the life of Jesus. Um, and thank Pastor Tori for the last couple weeks. He gave me a little break and covered John 6 and 7. And um, um, it was, I learned a lot. It was, it was great. I trust you got a chance to, to, to hear those and be encouraged by those, those messages. Um, we've been, I, <laughs> this, this book I've been trying to, um, my goal has been to try and get through it in a timely fashion to some degree. And it's just not working out that way. I have to be honest. Uh, <laughs> this is part eight, and and um, and every week I, I go into to my prep, preparation time, going, okay, how much can we how much can we cover this week, you know? Um, and and it, I keep thinking it's going to get better as we go, and it's just not. Uh, uh, we've been covering about a chapter a week. Today we're not even going to get through the first third of chapter eight. Uh, um, but but that's okay. There's a story here that it's just it just needs uh, it's just too good to not spend proper time on it. So so we're going to be looking at the first eleven um, verses in chapter eight today in the book of John. Um, it's a familiar story to many of you, I'm sure. It's you know known as the 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 woman caught in adultery. Um, as I mentioned, this is John chapter 8. A couple of just contextual things for the book as a, or this chapter as a whole. Um, the first one is that actually I learned this this week, and it, it, you know, it, it's a good appreciation moment to kind of think of you know, a lens we can look at Scripture. John chapter 8, the, the text in John chapter 8 covers, um, most scholars think, about six months of Jesus' life. Um, sometimes when we read, uh, especially the, the Gospels, we, you know, we see this text and this text right next to each other, and our assumption is just like it's all like, you know, chapter 8, he was here and said all this stuff, and chapter 9, he was there and said all this stuff, and a lot of times that's not true. <laughs> and so what we have in, in John chapter 8 is, is uh, John's pulling out from Jesus' life over this section of time Things uh, that, that Jesus said, Jesus did, uh, to, to, to convey a specific message. And um, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we, we had to also start, I think it was John chapter 6, with a little discussion about uh, text and, and, and original text. And this is another example of that. Um, this story uh, is a text that, that is, not, is not found in the earliest manuscripts of of, of the Gospel of John. Um, scholars are, are very confident that this is absolutely a true story of Jesus that was a part of, of the, the oral history of, of, of the Christian faith, of, of the, the, the church. Um, sometimes we, I think, we don't come from an oral tradition, right? Every, I mean, we, we write down everything. Right, as in our in our society, we have posted. We can't do anything. We can't go to the grocery store and get all the things that we need at the grocery store without writing it down. Right, that's just the the way our brains work, the way we work. And so, for us, it's hard to understand a, a, a culture that there would be important, official, trustworthy things that weren't written down. But this is remember we're way before the printing press and paper and pens and all this. So um, what got written down was was very 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 limited, and people developed a very trustworthy, very um, dependable system of oral tradition. And so what we have in this story that we're going to look at today, the woman adultery, is most likely one of those that was then added a few generations after John. So John didn't actually put this in, um, in the gospel, but it was added, added a bit later, although everyone agrees that this was a valid story of Jesus um, and fits within the narrative uh, here. So I um, just wanted to throw that out there. You may have footnotes in your Bible to that effect. Um, uh, it, it doesn't... doesn't Change or need a, we don't need to, to um, worry about about oh that wasn't original. It was it's still um, 
it's still a trustworthy source. It's still a part of Scripture. And so we can, we can with confidence, look at it and, and know that it's, it's useful for, for life change. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, as we open your word today, we ask that you would um, speak to us. Um, we, we've celebrated baptism, new life in you this morning. Um, God, and we just ask that, uh, we thank you that you are a God that, that doesn't just make us new once. You are, you are making all things new every day. And so we again turn to you and say, don't just teach us this morning, God, but change us. Help us to see you more clearly, to love you um, more intently, to be more like you as we, we look into your word. Amen. Okay. Um, so John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery, the story um, is about a woman caught in adultery. I know, <laughs> I know that's, a, that's a, quite the headline. You could probably get that from the name. Uh, I say it that way, though, because it... it, it it's not about some other things that maybe some people, um, it has been tried to take this story and use to talk about some other topics, all right? This story, and we'll get into to, to it, while it deals with, because what we end up kind of here, and you'll see, is a, is a kind of a legal battle, right, between Jesus and the Pharisees. Um, but this story should not, cannot really faithfully be accurately applied to a discussion on governmental use of capital punishment. Does that make sense? Um, that is, that is a, a real um, issue, a conversation that, that, that it's important to, be ha to have. Um, this story is not about that, all right? Just because, uh, and, and this is just a good um, kind of general way to look at the scripture um, when, when you're looking at scripture, if it's a story about a person, like we have to understand the Bible, not all of the Bible is prescriptive. There are large parts, a lot of the Bible is descriptive. Okay? That means it is, it is telling you something or telling you something that happened. It is not necessarily telling you what should happen. All right? Um, David and Bathsheba. David has an affair. And then kills, kills uh, Bathsheba's husband. Remember that story? I mean, you know, we kind of intuitively, that's not a prescriptive story. That, right? that is not telling us that that is justified or something that we should, uh, is okay. But it's in the Bible. There are lots of things. So whenever we're looking at scripture, we have to, we have to look at it through that lens and, and, and really make sure before we apply scripture to whatever issue we're looking at, that, that we're being faithful to the intent of the scripture itself. And this scripture is not intended to be a, a a treatise on, on government policy, okay? Um, just throw that out there because this has been used to make a defense, you know, to, to, to kind of try and weigh in on that issue. And the scripture, scripture is great at giving us guidance if we will be faithful to let it guide us when it, in the ways that it's supposed to, right? <laughs> in the ways it's intended. So that, this is a story um, about Jesus. And this is a story about uh, a woman, and this is a story about the Pharisees at that time. This is not um, some metaphor for how government should run. Um, all right, enough with the, the, the qualifiers. Let's just get into it. <laughs> John chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. Uh, a crowd soon gathered and, and sat down, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? And then verse 6 it tells us why they're doing this. Just Point blank says they were trying to trap him into saying uh, saying something that they could use uh, against him. Okay, so um, so we're going to talk a little bit about this trap. So uh, 
The law of Moses, which was the law that they, as, as Israel followed, right? They, they, they didn't have a separate, there was no separation within the, the, the Jewish community. They didn't have a, a, a secular governance system and a religious system. It was all one. Okay, so the law of Moses was the law. And, and it guided and, and regulated everything from how, how you went to church and how you worship God to, um, to the criminal justice system was all contained within the law of Moses. And some of the things that, that just some, we need to understand before we understand how this, this thing is a trap for Jesus, um, a couple things. So the, the, the law of Moses wasn't like our legal system. It was actually... Um, it was actually harder. There was a much greater burden of proof in the law of Moses than we even have today. You know, we think of our justice system, you know, innocent until proven guilty, and we act like we, you know, like we invented just the justice system. Um, but, but it's really not true. In, in the law of Moses, you had to have two witnesses that had to witness the actual act in order to, uh, to, to, to convict somebody. And now, when we say two witnesses to witness the actual act, we mean witness the actual act. You know what I'm saying? Like, coming out the door doesn't count, <laughs> right? Um, any innuendo, any, they had to see the actual deed before, and you had to have two people. So... Um, Needless to say, if you think of that as, if that's the standard for conviction, um, didn't happen a whole lot, right? If you're, if you're trying to engage in an illicit affair, it's not very often you're going to have two other people, random people in the room watching it happen. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, so this was, this was not something that came up a lot. Let's, uh, people didn't, weren't, you know, sometimes we read the Old Testament and we read these sort of stories and we get, can get this picture of like, this was an everyday occurrence. People were getting stoned left and right for this, right? Um, and it's just not true. It was extremely rare. It also shows us just how orchestrated this trap was. That was the burden of proof that they were trying to meet, um, that doesn't happen on accident, right? <laughs> so, so, there was, so there was definitely some planning involved here. Um, so, but why was this a trap? Why, if this was the legal system and they're following, how, how, is, this, how is this a trap for Jesus? Um, well, it, it, it's, not a, it's not just about uh, Jesus. It's Jesus who preached love going against the meaning of the Old Testament. That's the, the goal, that, one of the goals that they're trying, this trap they're trying to set. This Jesus that they, they, they disdained his, his, his seeming to their, from their perspective, his tolerance for these undesirable people, his, his, this un, un, just over-the-top mercy and grace that he's preaching, um, this, this love that he has and, the, and these, these low standards for living that, that, that they saw in him. They were trying to, to pit that and his followers that were attracted to this being called and drawn to him with this message. They were trying to pit that against the law in the Old Testament. And they're saying if we can put him in a position where he has to choose between these two things, we've got him. If Jesus says to let her go... They can accuse him uh, with the Jewish law for not following, for not following the law, and, and then and then they can accuse him of being a false teacher, and they can and they can they can go that route, right? And, and then he would lose credibility as a teacher. Um, if he says stoner, it would to them. It, they were thinking it would undermine his whole message in the eyes of of all these people, right? Because because much of Jesus' followers were guilty, right? <laughs> like he 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 hung out with with sinners and and with people that 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 would identify as as guilty parties, and 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 it would seem to contradict them this message that he's been preaching. So so they're they're trying to put him between these two things. Not to mention, if Jesus, if Jesus says to stone her, um, so this happens in, this is all happening uh, 
uh, around the temple, right? And there, and there would have been Roman soldiers present. They, they had a garrison right there. Um, they, they, were, they would have been patrolling. Um, and if Jesus was the one that, that said to stone her, they could then take him before the Romans, the soldiers there, and have him arrested if not killed. Because at this time, capital punishment, while, while Jews had their law, they were under Roman rule. And Rome had decided that, that the Jews no longer had the right to, to um, exact capital punishment. That's why if you fast forward, you know, Jesus at the end, at, in the, uh, the Easter story, why, why, the Rome, why you see the Pharisees and everybody, they're taking Jesus to the Roman officials because they had to get approval. Because they didn't have the, the, as an occupied nation, they didn't have the authority um, to, to carry it out on their own. And so, so the Pharisees here are putting Jesus in, a, in, in this category, this, this trap. They say, well, if, if he says stoner, then, then we can take him before. Now we have a charge that we can take him to Rome, who has the ability to, to kill people anyway. So that would really work out. So we're not sure exactly what they were hoping the outcome would be, but I think that's probably the one that maybe they were, they were shooting for. <laughs> Just get this over with and let Rome be the bad guys. Um, so they think they've got him. They've got him in this quagmire of a, of a, of a trap with, with the people and with Rome and, and all this. Let's see how well it works. Uh, John chapter 8 says, They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down and wrote in the dust. Such a fascinating answer. And there's, there's a lot in this. Uh, so, so, so we're going we're gonna to drill down in this. Um, there has been uh, debates for probably since like, I don't know when we lost the information, but for the last number of centuries, one of the like big kind of fun-ish questions that, that Christians have been asking is, what do you write in the dirt, right? <laughs> what was going on in that moment? And there's been, there's been any number of theories floated out there. Um, anything from just, it was just a boss move? Like, there's nothing more like... Like, you know, in the movie, the, the guy who's in control in a situation, you know, the power guy and the, the people come in, if they're going to accuse him, they always, if they want to show the guy's really in control, he's always kind of dismissive and just kind of doing something else while, while they're being talked at, right? They're just kind of lighting the cigar and barely paying attention or something. And, and, and so some people think it was just that. It was just him showing his calm and his control and composure in the moment and almost being dismissive dismissive of these people that were coming before him. Um, some people have theorized it was the names of the girlfriends of some of the people that were doing the accusing. Some have theor some thought that maybe, maybe he wrote down all of the accusers' names, like prophetically, and just to kind of show them who they were dealing with. Some think he was, he was maybe just diverting his gaze because in this scenario, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not completely unreasonable to think that this woman might have been naked. Because remember, she was caught and brought like directly from the act of adultery, which, um, you know, requires not having clothes on. Um, so they, 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 there's a, a real possibility they didn't give her time to get dressed and, and so Jesus, out of respect, is diverting his gaze. That's another, another theory. Um, but I think, I'm just going to give you my, can I give you, this is my, my, my guess, my theory, and I, I, I give it not just because it's a fun piece of information, but because it, it fits well with and kind of points us towards the rest of the story. Um, uh, this, but we don't know for sure. But this is, this is the one I think that fits the best and sheds the best, best light on the moment. Um, first is that it's black letter law in the Old Testament that for a stoning to happen, a couple things had to be true. There was a 
procedure, you know, like a, like a court case. Um, bo- first, both the man and the woman were to be tried and convicted together. Okay? Number two, there must be two, we mentioned this, two eyewitnesses that make the accusation. Um, to, it was the eyewitnesses that were the ones that were the accusers, right? So it wasn't, they didn't have like police that went out and found eyewitnesses and brought them in. It was, the, they were the accusers. Um, and the accusers were to be the ones to throw the first stones. There was a level of responsibility that was put on, on, on the accusation, which is really kind of, just God's really smart. Right, I mean, what 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 uh, what better way to kind of um, heap a, resp- a heavy responsibility, a burden on these eyewitnesses, where you, you are you are calling on them if you're going to trust their testimony that, that that they are that confident that they're willing to actually participate in the taking of the life. Um, I think that, that that's just. Really, really unique as a, a rule. It's really brilliant. But anyway, so these three things had to happen. And the way the trial was supposed to be carried out was very specific. The accusers uh, were to take the accused, the, the man and the woman, to the temple. And there was a specific spot in the temple that they were supposed to go. And they were supposed to take the people before a priest. Okay? Starting to see some inconsistencies? You're supposed to go to a specific place in the temple before a priest, not some random dude in, some, in the courtyard. Um, the priest would then lay out formal charges. Okay, And the way they would do this is they would stoop down in the temple. Because, you know, temples are... They're, they're, you know, their, their houses and structures back then weren't like, weren't like ours today with, you know, shag carpet and walls and air conditioning and, you know, got vacuumed every week. The floors, the floors in the temple were just always dirty. There was always dust there in a desert. I mean, if you've ever, like, had a, had like a, a like a cabin on the beach, <laughs> you know, sand just comes in, like, whether you like it or not, um, and so to, the way they would do formal charges is they would bring the people in, the priest would uh, stoop down, and in the dust of the floor of the temple, he would write the names of the accused and the crime that they had committed in the dust. Okay? Does that sound, is that, are we seeing the connection here? And it, it seems likely that, that what Jesus is doing in this moment when he, when he, stoops down writing in the dust is he's fulfilling the law properly that the Pharisees had skirted to try and create this trap. And in doing so, he highlights and accuses them without speaking a word of all the ways that while they're here trying to enforce the law, they're actually breaking it for their own selfish purposes. The fact that reminding everybody there that they're supposed, you know, caught in an act of adultery, last I checked, takes two people. And we have a woman. Where's the dude? Some people have theorized the reason the guy wasn't there was he might have been a scribe or a Pharisee. Um, when he wasn't there. The fact that these charges aren't being brought to the right person at the right place in the right way. That this whole thing is, is, a, is, a, is a sham in, in a lot of ways. To me, that's the best theory. But in any case, Jesus stands up and, and flips with one sentence, flips this whole thing around, and instead of him, he goes in one sentence from him being on trial to these people, the accusers being on trial. And he does it in such an interesting way. He, he stands up and he doesn't just quote the law, because the original law uh, that, that he's referencing says that uh, if you're going to accuse him, you have to be innocent of that crime. I think it's in Leviticus. Um, 
But Jesus expands the law, just like he had done a number of different times. You remember the Sermon on the Mount? That, that feel-good romp, if there ever was one, that talks about how, you know, the law says that if you, uh, if you do not murder, but if you, if you have hate in your heart, you've murdered. The law says don't commit adultery, but if, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Where he's, he takes these laws of the Old Testament, he takes the, the heart and he expands it to the heart of behind the law. Right? We see him doing that yet again here. He, he expands this rule and says, uh, uh, you know, it, it's not just, not just if you haven't committed this specific sin, but if, if you want to be the first to cast, cast the stone, you have to be innocent of any sin. And with that, some doodles and a sentence, Jesus disarms an angry mob. And I, I love the, the verse 9. The way they when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. I guess there is, there is some wisdom that comes with age. They were the first to recognize they had lost. Um, on, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the women. So they recognize that their hypocrisy has, has been exposed, that the trap has backfired. This is not going the way that they had anticipated. And so they just kind of exit stage left. So now we're, we're just left with, with the, I mean, with the crowd is still there. The accusers are gone. Of course, the disciples are there because how else would we have this account? Um, but we have Jesus and the woman, the, the guilty woman, by all accounts. There's nowhere in, this, nowhere in the story do we get any inclination that she was falsely accused. Um, and, and Jesus, and here's, the, here's the, 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 let's say irony, but the interesting part in this moment so he, he, Jesus expands this rule, says he was without sin, let them cast the first stone. And, and, and the accusers leave, and now we're left with Jesus and the woman. But Jesus qualifies, right? Jesus is sinless. So even by his own, by his own words, by his own um, standard, he is still in a position to rightfully condemn this woman. And the only one that has the right to condemn her. But as if we keep reading, we see that's, that's not what he does. Verse 10 says, Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Jesus has the, the right to condemn her the power to condemn her, but he chooses grace and he chooses mercy. We see in this story some powerful truths about how Jesus overcomes sin in our life. The fact that grace comes before sanctification. That we don't we don't get ourselves cleaned up. We don't get ourselves to a point that we make ourselves worthy of his grace or of his salvation or his forgiveness. Grace, forgiveness always has to come first. Because it's grace that empowers our transformation. It's not the other way around. We see in this story an important part of Jesus' character. I said at the beginning when we started this series, John is very focused on exposing and helping us understand not just what Jesus did, but who he was, his character, his, his personhood. And we see one of, the most, um, one of the most amazing and one of my favorite aspects of Jesus in this story, and, and that is uh, who Jesus is, who God is, his meekness. We don't use that word a lot. We, 
but the, the, maybe a more common word that, that we use uh, would be his humility. That Jesus is humble and he's meek. Um, but to understand that, we have to really understand uh, what that word means. Because while we, we may use the word humble uh, uh, regularly, we don't use meekness. Our, uh, has anybody used that word in the last six months? <laughs> Maybe in a Bible study, right? But, uh, you know, I, I, I doubt that came up watching Monday Night Football a whole lot or, you know, watching the Buckeye game. Um, but it's important that we understand because we, we do use humility a lot, but to be honest, we use it wrong a lot. <laughs> and so it, it, this story is a great uh, teaching point for us to understand what meekness, what humility really looks like and why it's so um, life-giving for us that Jesus is humble, that Jesus is meek. Because humility, meekness, a lot of times we think of those things in just in terms of being nice, of being submissive even, of of maybe even just you being very aware of your own faults. These are being being not 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 being braggadocious. But that's not that's really a bad picture of what humility and meekness is. Um, I came up with my own my own definition um, <laughs> after studying just because uh, it's long, but it. it I, because it, it's not a simple concept. Because like everything in John, you know, John, we've been looking at how John, when he's talking about Jesus, it's, it's, he, he's a, there's so much duality to him, right? He's God and he's man. And he's, he's savior, but he's also the judge and all these things. Well, meekness embodies a kind of this dualistic thing within it because it is, it is confident. It is brave. It is secure. It is powerful. But all of that confidence and bravery and security and power is used to restrain itself with gentleness and love for the purpose of extending mercy and grace. It's, it's another paradox. You know, Jesus is, is just full of these, these, these seemingly opposing opposite truths that are both true at the same time. The, the, the word uh, meekness comes from the, the, the original Greek word, comes from the word uh, for a powerful beast, like a, like a stallion or, or a pit bull that has been tamed, that has still resident within it the immense power it was created for, but has, has, has chosen not to, not to inflict or enforce that power on somebody else. Pit bulls really get a bad, bad rap, and when they're not raised right, they, they are some of the scariest animals that you will find in a city. But I tell you what, if you've ever seen a well-trained pit bull, <laughs> they are some of the, some of the, the, the uh, just the, the, the sweetest Animals, they they can be they can be a great. I had a buddy growing up that when I was in my twenties that had had the the kindest, gentlest pit bull in the world, and and it was honestly it was one of the safest animals you could have around kids because it didn't have a mean bone in its body, and because it's so strong, because it was so tough, there was nothing anybody could do to that animal to make it to to scare it or hurt it or make it angry. Because it was just so tough, it, was, it, it just didn't flinch. In fact, it's, one of its favorite things to do is if it wanted to be petted, it would, it would kind of like back up India and like smack you with its haunches. And, and, and you could pet it and it wouldn't it'd like get, not mad, but it would just like, that wouldn't make it happy. It, would, it wanted you to like punch it in its butt. Because it's so tough, it, it like wanted this like extra sensory, you know, kind of really hard pat. And, and, and he just loved it. He'd be all, anyway. But that's a picture of, of what humility is. It's, in the kingdom, meekness and, and weakness may rhyme, but they're opposites. Yeah. 
Meekness is not thinking less, thinking less about less of yourself or, or making others think, think less of you. Meekness is about just having a, a disposition and an understanding and a confidence and security that you don't require constant self-evaluation. That you know you're okay and your focus isn't constantly inward. You have the security to put your eyes up and be looking around. And what you see doesn't threaten you because there's strength there. There's confidence there. There's power there. In our story, Jesus shows his power and his bravery as he stands up to this angry mob. And then he shows us his gentle grace and mercy as he, he deals with the woman herself. He has all of the strength and all of this, this confidence and all of this power and he extends it, he uses it for her benefit. That interchange did not, did not help his relationship with the, the Pharisees. It was another confrontation. It was another, it was another reason why they were going to kill him in a little bit. But he still chose to have it and deal with it that way because he wanted to extend grace and mercy to her. He wanted to bring freedom into her life. As followers of Jesus, this part of of it's, this is the part of, of his character that, that the, the Holy Spirit can empower us to have. The closer we get to Jesus, the more we learn to trust him, that he, he, he really is in control of our lives and we are safe in him. And the, the more we are free to act with meekness, the more we understand that. It's not, it's not about how much more powerful you are or how much smarter you get. It's how much more you understand how powerful he is and how much control he has. And the more we truly believe and see Jesus in this way, the more we are empowered to act the same way. It affects our willingness to be vulnerable with him and others. If we understand meekness, if we understand his humility, it frees us to be completely vulnerable with him and open and honest with each other because we know that we have a God, we serve a God, we follow a Jesus that is meek and we can trust our weak spots with him because he's going to use his considerable power to extend us all the grace and mercy he can. It affects our, our, confident, our confidence to stand in conflict with others because we know we have a Jesus who is powerful and can stand and has our back. And we can make that stand with poise and composure and restraint. We're not, we're not, sometimes in, in, in conflict, the reason it, it, it gets ugly is because we're, we're trying to make a stand but we're not doing it out of security. We're doing it out of fear. Or we're doing it out of a feeling of self-preservation. Or we're doing it out of, out of, sometimes even out of vengeance. And when we act on those things, the conflict just gets worse. We all are at different places in this, in this aspect of our, our character. We all... Um, we all walk in, I think, in, in meekness and humility to some degree. Um, most of us. Especially people in this room. I know many of you guys, and you're all great. <laughs> um, but we all have room to grow. We all have, have um, we all have transform, more transformation that can happen in our lives as our eyes are open and we experience the meekness of, of Christ. And we tend to have a, a deficiency on one side or the other, right? Just like everything in life, we, we, we have tendencies. And, and um, we tend to, to, to fall short in the same ways. And it's different for each of us, but um, some of us fall short on, on 
seeing Jesus or, or really experiencing his confident strength and power. And some of us fall short on, on using or seeing his grace and his mercy. And whichever side you, you, haven't, you, you have a lack of experience or a lack of vision in is going to affect your ability to, um, to operate in that side of meekness. All right? Um, and we all, like I said, we're all dealing with this. So, so I'm going to close in just a minute, but I wanted to give us in our, our, our last little bit, I wanted to give you a little... Um, a little evaluation tool that you can do kind of now um, or throughout this week, just as you're, as you're living your life, just pray that the Holy Spirit would, would use, maybe use some of these thoughts um, to help, help you see where you're at, right? It's, that's the transformation change always starts with, 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 with that, with the revelation of where it is that you are, you know? A map, GPS, these things only work. You can't get to where you're going unless you know where you are, right? Because it's all relational. Um, so here, here's some, th- how you reflective, reflexively respond in certain areas can help us identify um, areas of, of meekness that we maybe could use some work. We need, we need Jesus, we need the Holy Spirit to do a work in us, um, and these aren't exhaustive, but I didn't want to get overwhelm us too, too much. So, so I, there's three. I'm going to give you three areas, uh, and each one of them we can miss it on, on one side or the other. Um, and so, so here's, here's how, you eva- how we can kind of like evaluate this week. Um, and, it's, and it's this. Watch your cat. Watch your cat. All right? <laughs> C-A-T. Uh, C stands for criticism. How you respond to criticism is directly linked to our meekness, to our humility. Um, Is your reflex in the moment when you receive criticism to just dismiss it? To just uh, immediately, it's not even out of their mouth and you're already... um, you know, on the defense, trying to, you know, come up with your lawyer ironclad argument for why they're wrong. You don't even know what they've said yet. You can just tell by their tone it's a criticism. And so you're like in real time processing all the defenses. And um, so do, do, you, uh, do you just dismiss it? Or on the other side, when you receive criticism, do you just, that's right, I'm horrible, that is horrible, yeah. Oh, you don't even know the half of, you know, like you jump in and start piling on. Like, oh, they're like, oh, you could have done this better. You're like, oh, you don't even know the half of it. That's like, that's like the best I've ever done. I'm so much worse than that. Where it just destroys you and, and you're, you just assume and believe and receive every negative thought, every negative statement, even greater than what they're trying to say, you know? They're, they're trying to say, hey, you, you know, you're, maybe you're, your spouse says, hey, you forgot to do this thing. And you hear, you are irresponsible. <laughs> and your response is, I know I'm the worst. That's a humility issue. Listen, like I mentioned before, being humble doesn't mean thinking you're horrible. Jesus was humble, but he knew who he was. And he was not afraid to tell people who he was and how great he was. How do we handle criticism? Second one, how do we handle advice? How do we handle advice? Do you always follow it? Is your reflex to just assume that, that somebody else, know, everybody knows better than you and you don't really know what's going on? Do you, is your reflex, your compulsion to just follow it because, because you don't want to make them upset if they don't follow it? 
Your, your priority is really making them happy over actually doing what's best? Or is your, your reflex to never follow it? I, my Facebook profile, it says, uh, I graduated from the School of Hard Knocks for a reason. Um, I, I would like to think I've graduated from that school, but there was definitely a time where you couldn't tell me anything, right? I, I wasn't, if you gave me a piece of advice, I was going to, uh, I was going to probably do the opposite. Um, we never follow it because we know best. And, and I, I, I assume that anything you say is an attempt, if it doesn't line up with what I'm already doing, then you're either against me or you're trying to control me. How do we handle advice? And then the last one is uh, thanks, praise, gratitude. How do, we, how do we handle when we get that? Do we, can, can you receive it well? And by well, I mean one, believe it, that, that somebody actually could be, that you could be worthy of someone's gratitude. And handle it well in that you you. you, you you are able to take that in and you don't have to qualify it and excuse it away and, you know, act like, no, 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 no. I can't, I can't. Or the other side, are you so desperate for it that it, it drives your existence? The decisions you make, the things you do are, are all based on how do I get praise? How do I get people's appreciation how do I, I I need it to function if you're doing something and, and someone doesn't give you enough props or give you enough gratitude or praise you enough for it then you begin to resent them or hate or stop doing the job if that's the case then then the reason you're doing this is for the praise of the people or that person or their approval it's not because this thing you really think you should be doing So this week, I encourage you to take some time and as, as, that, as life happens, ask the Lord to show you when these things come up. But good, there's a good chance this week all three of these will happen. Certainly the first one. Probably the second one. Maybe the third one. And take note. Ask the Lord. Even pray ahead of it. We're going to kind of close in a moment of prayer. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to, to sensitize us and to be aware when those situations happen this week so that we, we notice what we, how we think or how we respond. Because <laughs> sometimes we, sitting here right now, you may be going, I don't, I don't really know. Um, but, the, but that's the, the, the beauty. One of the things that, that the Holy Spirit does if we will open ourselves and invite him in he will guide us into all truth and part of that is the truth of your own stuff um but we have to we have to be looking for it and we have to invite him into that 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 process um take some time this week and pray about these situations and invite the lord not just to show you but to also change you empower you See, how, look at who Jesus is and, and really understand, embrace the fact that, gosh, I, I, can, I can have these, these, um, this quality of meekness and humility um, because, God, I know, Jesus, I know that you are that way too and you're that way with me. And because of that, I can, I can, I can operate in the same, the same way because I know that you will do that for me. And so I can stand confidently in front of people and, and, and speak up for truth because I know that, that you will speak up and stand up for me. And I can extend grace and mercy to other people because that's how you treat me and that's how you want me to treat others. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word this morning. Pray that it's encouraged us and spoke to our hearts, Lord. Um, God, I thank you for your meekness. I thank you uh, that you, you reach for grace and mercy. 
you have strength, you have all of the power, and that you choose to use it to draw us to yourself and to make, to make things in our life and in this world beautiful and right and orderly. And God, we, we just open our, our, our hearts and our minds this week. So we've been talking about meekness, God. We, we want to be more like you. And in, specifically in this area, Lord, maybe some of us here are struggle or need, need, a, need an empowerment to, to really walk in your, your confidence, in your security, in your, your authority, in your power. And God, some of us, some of us maybe need to, to learn what it means to, to live a life of grace and to, to reach and reflex ourselves. So our reflex is to reach for mercy, not condemnation. Not judgment. And Lord, only your spirit can teach us which it is we need. As we sit here right now, we, we, may, we, we may think we know we may be wrong. And so God, we ask that you would speak to us this week. Would you show us as we live our lives, as we go, would you whisper in our hearts? Would you open our minds and our eyes as we, we just live our lives this week when we come across these situations? Would you, would you tell us? Would you whisper? Hey, look at how you answered that. Look what happened in your heart when that guy said that thing. That wasn't a confident response. You were responding out of fear in that moment. Over here, you, 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 know, you, you took a hard stand there, but you did it because you, you got something out of it. That wasn't, that wasn't something that, I didn't, I didn't call you to that. that was, you did that on your own. God, we give you permission to, to show us our stuff because we know that you have grace and mercy waiting and transformation waiting when we recognize it and repent and give it back to you so that we can look more like you and act more like you. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. 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 God bless. See you guys later for class.